Inside 20, for those who desire to hunt close. Brought to you by Traditional Bow Hunters of Georgia, the Jim Bow Company, Gunshy Archery, Vantage Point Archery, Custom Kings Traditional Archery, and Triple T Strength. Inside 20 is a separate entity from our sponsors. The information shared with each podcast are the beliefs of the Inside 20 associates and the guests participating. Tonight, we would like to welcome some very special guests. Trevor from Triple T Strings. He's an Inside 20 sponsor and great at his craft. And Michael is joining us to talk all about bow hunting. How you guys doing tonight? Good, man. All right. Awesome. So, Trevor and Michael, I want to start with you, Trevor. Uh, can you tell us a little about yourself and why you chose to shoot traditional archery? Yeah, so I'm, I'm Trevor Fielder, uh, owner of uh, Triple T Strings and... Uh, avid traditional archer and bow hunter um been doing it pretty much since i guess probably high school something like that uh you know i started with compounds when i was in high school and uh switched over to traditional probably about the time i you know graduated high school and i've been doing that for 20 years now um you know just the first since the first day i saw a traditional bow that was just I saw it and I just knew that was going to be my thing, like, you know, before I even touched one. So that just spoke to me and, and I've been doing it ever since. Uh, it just, just seemed to come natural and seemed to be something that I've always been fascinated just by watching that arrow take flight. So it did. Yeah. I mean, it, it's going to be a lifelong journey for me. I already know. And, uh, and there's just never been any question from the first time I had a trad bow in my hand. That was just what I wanted to do. That's awesome, man. Yeah, you know, I've often, I've often said that if if I gave up shooting traditional archery, I would uh, probably just stop hunting. I mean, because this is it, you know. Yep, yep. That's that's it, man. If I if I have to give up trad, uh, I don't know that I would quit hunting. I, I mean, I have killed game with guns, you know, shotguns, muzzle loaders, rifles, uh, everything that is legal to use on an animal, and I, I do enjoy eating them as much as I like hunting them. So, you know, if I couldn't shoot a trad bow, I'd shoot a crossbow. And if I couldn't shoot that, I'd shoot a shotgun. And I would use whatever legal means I could to put meat in my freezer. But, but, uh, but yeah, I, I truly enjoy traditional bow hunting. Um, I also truly enjoy filling my freezer. So, <laughs> so, so there's about. that. Yeah. The farm, the farm to table lifestyle is, uh, you know, heavy in our house. Awesome. Awesome. That's great. What about you, Michael? Yeah, so I'm Michael Davenport, avid bow hunter, obsessed trad archer. I started out uh, 1986. I killed a uh, deer with a recurve. I didn't, uh, my financial situation as a kid was not great, and I found a recurve in a pawn shop, and I was obsessed with hunting and and uh, got lucky the very first year and shot a shot a deer with a recurve. Uh, got to college, um, kind of put away the recurve, uh, could afford a little, little better equipment, if you want to call it better, and hunted with a compound uh, for quite a long time. But about 2001, 2002, uh, almost the same thing Trevor said. I, I I knew I'd you know killed a deer with a recurve before, and my great-grandfather had made his own longbow out of lemon wood. And that's my great-uncle, who I adored. He's a taxidermist. He had an old herder's recurve. And I picked that thing up and started shooting it a little bit 
and then got my own. And so since about 2002, that's all I've hunted with. Um, occasionally, as Trevor had mentioned, to put some meat in the freezer. Uh, I pulled a few triggers, but for the most part, uh, all of my hunts have been um, with a stick bow, and that's you know hunting bears to mountain goats to elk to whatever I can hunt, whatever I can hunt with a stick bow. And uh, still enjoy it. It's still very much part of my life. And uh, as long as I can draw that bow back, send it down the middle, and we keep doing it. Man, that's great. That's great. Yeah, drawing the bow back, man. You think, how long can it last? You know, I want to hunt until I'm 90 years old, if the Lord's willing. But you think, how long can you you draw that bow? That's the number one question. <laughs> that's right. So, yeah, I mean, I shoot, I shoot 40. I mean, what's crazy is you think about people, the, the, the hunters of the past, you know, they were shooting uh, 70, 80 pounds. My friend, Monty Browning, who, who I hunt with a lot and, and is just a great dude, man. Up until just a few years ago, he was still shooting a, a 68 pound recurve. Um, but you know, for as long as you, Hey, look, drawing 40 to 45 pounds at, I'm still doing it, and I think I can do that for a long while. So it uh it'll get the job done. Don't you worry, buddy. We're gonna get to that here in a minute. I'm I'm gonna put the shock <laughs> on everybody about about what kind of draw weight and draw length I got. <laughs> That's right. All right. I'm excited to hear about that. So Trevor, um, how long have you been in the string making business? Oh, that's a good question. Um. I guess it, I guess we'd have to go officially and unofficially. So it it kind of I have been making my own bowstring. I would say five years into uh, traditional archery. So so let's say that I picked up a trad bow circa 2002. Let's just go with that. I mean I'm guessing here. That's about when I graduated high school, 2002. Um, so I picked up a trad bow two to five years in, I started making my own strings. And at the time, everybody's got to remember, I mean, technology, I'm, I'm an IT guy by trade, so I know more than anybody how fast technology changes. At this particular time, there was no Facebook. There was barely internet. I mean, we're talking Netscape Navigator. Anybody younger than me <laughs> is not even going to know what that is. Uh, I mean, you know, you had to go to the library. Nobody had a computer in their homes for the most part. We didn't have smartphones. We didn't have social media. We didn't have none of that stuff. Uh, in my town, there was one bow shop, period. It was a compound shop. Nobody shot a trad bow. You were isolated from from everything. So whatever you was figuring out, you was figuring it out on your own, right? And so about five years into it, uh, I'm on the leather wall. If anybody knows what that is, that was kind of one of the first social channels. Um, and, and I found a guy on there to order some strings from and, and, you know, I ordered a few and the lengths weren't really working out and I decided, Hey, I got to give this a try. And, and really even then no YouTube, no nothing. I just sort of, I don't remember even how I figured it out. Like I know I watched some video somewhere oh and, and there was a guy at the local club who made them and i watched him make one and i sort of puzzled it together and i was making these very rough rudimentary flemish strings for my bow just just you know i i would never have made one of those for anybody else but they were stringing my bows right and and that was just how it was going to be from then on and sometimes i had to make two or three of them 
to to get one that actually was the right length and whatever. Um, so yeah, that went along for quite a while, and then right around the time that uh, COVID hit, I had been talking to a guy uh, probably a year or two years prior to that uh, we first met. His name's Cody Greenwood. He he's the uh, owner of Trad Lab, and you know, Cody and I became pretty good friends and we talked on the phone quite a bit. Cody was pretty new to the traditional scene, but he has a very analytical mindset and he was set out to just figure everything out. He's an engineer. I mean, he, he just has the mind to figure things out to the nth degree. And Cody and I were like, you know, peas and carrots as far as that goes, because, uh, you know, the way his mind worked and the way my knowledge of traditional archery, we just kind of really mesh together as friends and uh he really helped me progress my string knowledge um i would produce recipes and send to him and he would test them and we would iterate back and forth and uh it was a really good friendship for several years and as soon as covid hit um you know we weren't going out anymore we were kind of isolating at home and had a lot of free time on my hands and and i thought well you know i'm gonna make a few strings for for friends and made a started out with a Facebook post and said, you could probably go back and find the thing. Uh, whatever year that was that COVID hit like early February or whatever that, uh, was that 20, what were we 23 now? So 20, 2020 maybe, uh, I'm just guessing here, but long story short, uh, started then just made a Facebook post that, Hey, I think I'm going to make a few Flemish strings for some friends. And, uh, that quickly about three months in turned into me going and hiring an accountant hiring a lawyer, getting an LLC. Uh, apparently there was a need for traditional strings. <laughs> so I've just been holding on for dear life, trying to keep up with demand ever since. And uh, here we are today. So, yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. You make a, a great string for sure. Awesome. Um, Appreciate it. Yeah, we, we, we really try to do, you know, uh, the best we can do, I mean, we work with as many top-level archers as we can. We take all the feedback. Even if a guy's brand new to traditional and we send him a string and they have feedback, we take that just as we do from anybody and try to try to take that to heart and, and improve the recipe as best as possible. So why is picking the correct string so important? I mean, what what's... What's so important about the different types of string and, and your bow? Well, let's look at it from this perspective. Let's let's assume that you've spent your hard-earned money, uh, you've invested enough money to purchase a bow that, you know, in and of itself is going to be extremely consistent and repetitive. Um, you have to consider that these things are, you know, if we're talking about trad bows, hunting bows in general, uh, a lot of them are made out of wood, uh, you know, primarily wood as the product. It, wood is a wood as a material is is variable from from heat to cold, uh, you know, temperature swings, uh, moisture, so on and so forth. So you're hoping that you found a a bowyer and, and and a bow that's going to be consistent. So you need to pair that with a string that's going to be the same, uh, you know, consistent in all kinds of conditions. So. Uh, you need you need to have somebody a string maker that has that has tested his recipe in all of those conditions. Um, you know, one of the things between hunting and and competition archery, um, you know, I and this is one of the reasons I invited Mike to the podcast because 
I'm going to be honest with everybody. If it comes a downpour, I'm getting out of the tree or getting off the ground, and, and I'm probably just <laughs> going to go back to, to the house. Uh, that's just my kind of hunting. Uh, we'll, we'll get them tomorrow. But, you know, on the competition scene, <clears throat> if it comes a downpour, we're going to keep shooting until we get off the course, right? So I, right. I have experienced times. Um, I, re- I will never forget a time very specifically where uh, we were at the second leg. I believe this is the second leg of the IBO uh, tournament trail. And we at the time, it was hosted over in Indiana. And it was the last 10 targets, it came an absolute downpour. And by when it started, uh, three targets later, I was having to add four yards to every target as far as my judge and 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 you know i'm a gap shooter so i'm i'm basically if i have say let's say it's a 20 yard target i'm going to aim as if it's 24 yards and i was still impacting a little bit low so you know as a string maker i, I have to look at that and say man i've got to produce a string that in all conditions pouring rain a sweltering heat uh, you know, I, my first year at trad worlds, I, this was long before I started building strings professionally. I, I brought a string that I had been shooting all season and here we are, we're in June or July trad worlds. We're in the heat of Tennessee in the middle of the summer. And this string has been shot thousands of times and it is shot in, except it had never been pre-stretched because at the time I was just making them for myself and stretching them on my bow. And I get down to trad worlds at Pappy's. And the string moved almost a half an inch that day. And wow. and by the time I got off the course, I was like, what in the world? This string has to be shot in. How could it be moving like this? But the, the humidity had got the wax hot, right? And so it was that day that I learned the value of pre-stretching. So, you know, the point of these stories is to say I have experienced poor quality strings through my own uh personal abilities to make a poor quality string from beginning to where I am now. And, uh, and, and so the value of a, of a quality string is the consistency. So when you have a consistent string and you pair that with a consistent bow, all the practice that you do in your backyard or wherever you practice and sight in and so on and so forth translates to the moment of truth. Uh, you know that your gap at 20 yards in practice is going to be your gap at 20 yards on an animal. Or if you're an instinctive shooter, your sight picture that you've ingrained from thousands and thousands of shots is going to be the same sight picture in the moment of truth on the animal of a lifetime or whether it's just the doe that's filling the freezer this month, right? Um, you know, that that's, that's the value of, of a quality stream. Yeah, quality is important because when you think about it, man, I mean, there's there's really three things that go into, you know, shooting targets and um, hunting. I mean, there's you got the shooter, which for me, I'm, I'm constantly making mistakes. The bow and the string. I mean, um, you want all those to be on point. So I definitely get your uh, get your thought process there. So yeah. let me ask you, let me ask you this question. What are the advantages and disadvantages of the different string materials? that are available out there? So, I mean, for trad shooters, we basically just want to focus on it. Okay, so 
we're either going to be shooting fast flight or an older material. We'll call it Dacron. Um, you know, the Dacron is for your older bows that are not fast flight compatible. So if you're shooting one of those, B55 is is the best material in a Dacron um, in a Dacron string that you can use for those types of bows. But most of us nowadays, those bows are all getting pretty old. Uh, we still make quite a few Dacron strings, but but a majority of our strings that we're putting out today are all fast flight. So when you get into fast flight, there's just a million different options. What's important to understand there is that all of those string options, all those material options came about from the progression of archery, uh, mostly from the progression into compound archery. So when, when they come out with the next version and the next version and the next version, uh, you can look through the line of, of when they were produced, and the material is thinner, it's it's uh, stronger, it has less elasticity, less creep, less, 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 in a smaller form factor. And why is that? Uh, well, that's because they're trying to make those compound uh, cams and wheels smaller, thinner, lighter, narrower, so they can get more speed, more efficiency. Uh, when you talk about a trad bow, you know, yes, we have made amazing advances in technology. You take a set of backwoods composite limbs that are 40 pounds, you could put that against a 60-pound set of ASL, uh, an ASL longbow, and you'd be surprised how close the speed's going to be. I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty amazing how far we've gone in the traditional community. However, what we need from a string really hasn't changed since the single string bow you know was invented and and you know the standard limb profile recurve right. limb profile was created so yeah. in in today's archery even with modern traditional bows most of us want to be targeting a fast flight string made of 100% dyneema that's going to allow your builder to create a recipe that has the proper elasticity, the proper consistency, and and the proper forgiveness to give you the best draw curve, uh, the best feel, and the best forgiveness. So, so that I kind of want that to segue into another part of the string. And Michael, I'm going to ask you this: You've been hunting for a long time. What type of knocking point do you prefer? And why? Or do you have a preference at that? I know some people may not have a preference. Well, I, I don't like brass. Um, brass tends to, if you're shooting off your face, that, that gets to be an issue. I've also found in my experience that, that those things move um, as temperature gradients. You know, um, they're just, to me, they're unstable. Uh, Trevor ties a really nice... Um, his his knocks are really really nice. His knock sets are nice because you can twist up and down and change uh, your knock heights, and they're tied out of synthetic material um, that that hold really really well. Um, if I get one of his strings and I end up having to monkey with the knock or the or I wear wear it out, then I tie Korean type knocks, uh, which are seven strands of, and I use B55 for it. That's just what I've got around, but that's just, you know, kind of, um, I want them 
I, I want them to be stable. Uh, what he does with his strings are, is really cool because you can move them, but they're they're rock solid once once you get to the knock high if you like. But you know, there are times at a tournament or um, even I've even noticed it at altitude. Like I'll have different arrow trajectory when I get there, and all of a sudden, um, because I'm at you know twelve thousand feet, um, I'm shooting high, and I can just make a little adjustment with those knock sets and just just raise my knock height just a little bit. I'm talking, gosh, a 16th, you know, enough to get that arrow to fly close to what I was doing at home. Um, and that's, you know, I'm sure that has more, uh, more to do with just altitude and, and everything else. But like for my goat hunt, I think I got there and I was shooting like four inches higher than on, on a lot of, let's say at 25 yards. Well, I just made a little tiny adjustment and made a difference, but I don't like brass. I'd rather, I'd rather have adjustable knots. And secondarily, if, if I've worn those out or I've boogered those up in some way, then I'll tie Korean knots, which usually don't go anywhere, but the, they don't have the benefit of being able to move them. Once you set those, they're done. So that's the first time I'm going to jump in. That's the first time we didn't rehearse this. That's the first time I've ever, ever heard anybody say, the experience that I had, which was the reason I got into the research of these adjustable tie knocks. Uh, the first year that I shot IBO Worlds, regular IBO Worlds, not Trad Worlds, uh, we were at Snowshoe Ski Resort, and I don't hmm. know what the elevation is there. You can Google it, look it up, uh, five, 7,000 feet, whatever. I mean, I'm here in Ohio. We're 800 feet from sea level. I mean, we're on the ground. And I get to IBO Worlds, and we're on the practice bags right before we go out for day one. And I am shooting a solid two and a half, three inches high. And I just reach, you know, I'm like, man, I get my knock pliers out. <laughs> I laugh at knock pliers. I threw them knock pliers away after that tournament. But I get the <laughs> knock pliers out, and I'm moving everything. And it's like, man, you know, to be able to twist those knocks one or two turns and put them gaps right back where they're supposed to be. Oh yeah. It's so confidence inspiring. So what, you know, I have, there's a video out there that I put public out on YouTube. Anybody can go find it. It's on triple T archery, uh, YouTube, uh, whether you tie whatever knock you decide to tie it totally fine. Adjustable or not adjustable tie knocks, you got to understand all these knocks on the market, they're different heights. So when you clip them onto the string, they're different heights. Um, and if you have a different string angle, so if you're shooting shorter, uh, you know, our, uh, hunting length bows, uh, 56, 58, 60 inch bows, this, depending on your draw length, the string angle can be so extreme with brass knocks that you have to start out with a really wide gap in your knock set between top and bottom to to make up for the fact that at full draw, it's not popping your knock off the string. Uh, biters, biter number two, whether that's the hunter or the asymmetrical, in my opinion, number one best knock on the market, but it's very tall. Uh, it's not like a mm -hmm. G-knock. G-knocks are much thinner. And when you draw that to full draw with a 58-inch bow, even in my short T-Rex arms, um, you know, you can have a problem with brass knocks. It'll pop the knock right off the string. If, and if you have that big, wide distance between your top and bottom knock set, when you release uh, – some guys don't even shoot a bottom knock set, but here's the deal. 
the bottom knock set is for when you release the string, right? You let it go. It's if you have a 28 inch draw, it's still got 20 inches. If your bow has an eight inch brace height, it's got to travel 20 inches before the arrow decouples. And for that 20 inches, you want to make sure that your knock doesn't move. You want it to stay consistent and stay clipped to the string at that specific point. And if you don't have a bottom knock set, it's going to move on you if it has a proper knock fit. It's going to slide down. So in order to maintain optimum consistency, you need a top and a bottom. And in order to get those as close to one another for short bows with a with a narrow string angle, you need to use some sort of a you know a nylon or or serving type material versus a brass knock set in order to uh, in order to make that fit the best. You know, that's really interesting that you brought up about um, the altitude and stuff. You know, guys that get the money together to go on their first destination hunt and, you know, they're shooting good at the house. And then the finally they they get to, to Canada and <laughs> they're shooting, you know, four inches high and they don't know what's going on. It's just something simple you don't think of, man. I mean, I know I... I probably wouldn't have thought that, you know, just adjusting a little bit um, would, would fix it. But that's interesting that you brought that up. And it's a very valid point that I think everybody needs to know for sure. If you plan on doing destination hunts. Yeah. yeah I mean, knowing that's, your that's equipment, I mean, that's, that's the key knowing your equipment and, uh, and knowing, um, you know, if you've done all your work on the range and in the tournaments and you know you're you're shooting a certain way when you get there, that hasn't changed, but something has and and having that's what the beauty of traditional archery is that it's only gonna be a few things besides you and if and if you know, if there's a simple solution like adjusting knock height with um, you know, and and getting everything kind of like Trevor said, you get the confidence is there once you dial that back in. It's like, oh, okay, you know, it was it was this, you know, something simple. Yeah, we all know confidence is is key in 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 our game for sure. Yeah. So Trevor, I want to ask you the next question. Leading up to that, we talked about knocking points and everything, and we're just gonna. We're just going to walk up the string. I want to ask you about um, the different string silence materials and what you prefer for different applications. Uh, well, you know, it's, uh, again, everything about the string needs to be consistent. So, you know, if you're, you got to look at what you're going to be doing with that string. Just. I'll just take the three that we offer cat whiskers, uh, Dyneema puffs and, and wool puffs. Uh, you know, a lot of people use fur also different kinds of animal fur. Um, you, you just have to look at the conditions that you're going to be using that string in. Um, you also need to look at how that material is installed. Um, I typically prefer a material that's installed around the outside of the string. So for us, that's our cat whiskers or our Dyneema puffs. We don't put either one of those through the center of the string. The value there is that you don't upset the strand tension. Um, it's really important uh, for a string to have even strand tension. So any type of silencer that works well being installed around the outside of the string 
is of extreme value to the archer. It brings more consistency to the string. It's quieter, uh, less vibration, uh, more consistency, you know, better longevity. Um, some materials don't don't work well being installed around the outside, like a wool puff. You got to put those through the string. Uh, they're not necessarily bad, but you know, on a well-made string, it's just a little extra work to ensure that they're put through there just perfectly so that the strand tension is as even as possible. But you got to remember, you're still dividing that string in half and separating it. So, you know, you're going to upset it a little bit just based off of how it's built. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I prefer, like I said, um, I think cat whiskers probably the ultimate. Um, some bows just don't, get as quiet with cat whiskers so that's why we also offer the dyneema puffs um, that's a marine grade dyneema fiber um, it's used in marine grade rope uh, like to tie boats off the boat docks and things like that and we turn it into a silencer um, it's it's a really good product it's it's an excellent replacement to the wool silencer but we still do install a lot of those wool puffs guys just like them you know they like the heritage they like the the, the old school look and feel of the wool, but the, the Dyneema is, is an excellent replacement for those. Yeah, you can't beat the look of uh, just the fur on the string, man. I mean, it it looks, sounds cliche, but it looks traditional, you know? Right, yep. Yep, it sure does. And, and you know, the same thing with the, whether it be the beaver fur, or I've seen guys use mink or otter or, Muskrat or all fur-bearing animals, I think, can be turned into a, a silencer. It, but but it all ends up the same. It's you're you're shoving it through the string, you're dividing the string, um, you know. But but ultimately, as long as you can keep even strand tension um, and it works good as a silencer, you're good to go. So, when I first got into traditional archery, man, I was like both of you guys, I'm sure I was hooked and I had the means to start buying some bows and I would, I would look all around, but I would go to eBay and I would buy these, these Damon Howitt bows that I, I really liked. I had shot a couple. I really liked them. So I started buying some and they're older bows. So it kind of segues me into my next question and it's understanding what your bow needs. Um, you know, that's important. How is it affected by string material in regards to old bows versus new? So I actually just had this conversation with a customer earlier this week, and uh, it's it's a good way to, to talk about this topic. It, it all ends with optimal elasticity. Um, you want the proper elasticity to provide the forgiveness you need as an archer. If if elasticity or and when I say that I want to make sure everybody knows what I'm talking about, your string is going to be a different length off of the bow than on the bow. When you brace it and it takes that force of being braced on the bow, if you were to get a tape measure out and measure it, it's going to be a certain amount longer. Okay, so that's that's what I'm talking about when I say elasticity. It's it's you know if you pulled it hand tight and measured it versus braced it on the bow. It's 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 a, has a little bit of a rubber band effect, not much, but but some. Um, optimal elasticity is what we're after. Now your older bows, they have to use more elasticity 
than your newer bows. And that's due to manufacturing processes have improved. Uh, the tips of the bows that hold the string, the technology and the materials available there have improved. The laminations and the glue and everything available to the bowyer has improved. Uh, so now we can use these fast flight materials with slightly lower elasticity, but we get to a point where, you know, you don't really want it to be any lower than it is if you shoot with your fingers. And that all, all has to do with the forgiveness and the correction factor of displacing the string by releasing it with your fingers. If we were to use a compound and a release aid, when you uh, squeeze the trigger or pull the hinge or whatever, that string is coming straight out of the center of that release. When we release with our fingers, the string has to bend around the fingers. So there's a correction factor there to get it back in track and online. And elasticity has to do with that forgiveness um, and the bow's ability to track true and shoot uh, a straight shot based off the variation from release to release to release that we impose on the bow. So, so that's where choosing the proper material and the proper strand count in the various materials on the market today uh, matters for consistency and accuracy and, and predominantly forgiveness. And so that's that's something that you know as a builder we focus on and and uh, you know I had a conver uh, back to what I first mentioned I had a conversation with someone earlier this week because they had they were mix and matching parts so ILF bows a lot of guys like to mix and match they'll buy like a Satori riser and they'll buy Uka limbs or they'll buy you know whatever it, it's just it's not same limbs and and riser by the same manufacturer. And, you know, when you buy these products, they come with manuals, right? Uh, and this manual, the riser manual, will tell you one thing, and the limb manual will tell you another thing. Um, but the reality is we've had to learn what the combination of those two things needs. Um, in fact, that specific example, Uka limbs and Satori riser, is a very popular combination right now. We're making a lot of strings for that. So, So as a builder working with some of you know, my fellow archers and, uh, you know, doing some testing ourselves in-house and so on and so forth, we've come up with optimal recipes for for all of these different combinations that are the most popular. Every once in a while I get one, you know, some wild combination I haven't tried before, and we just have to go, you know, go with our best guess or best educated effort to build the proper string for it. But most of the time for these more popular recipes, we've tested and developed a string that's going to be optimal on that bow, strand count, um, you know, stretch, uh, stretching, and everything we do in house to make it to make it optimal on that bow and 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 make it work out and and be the best recipe it can be. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you know, you you posted a picture that I saw a while back um, that. I had never seen it before and I, I didn't even know the string did this. So when you think you shoot a bow, you think that it just pops back into place, it flings the arrow. But what happens when when you release the string is that string doesn't just pop right back into place. It doesn't cut through the air. It it's like twisting and and kind of like a I don't know the best way to describe it. It's like when you get a 
it's like when you throw a fishing lure out on top of the water and you got slack in your line it's like that string's not just going straight back it's not a straight line it's it's twisting and turning which is really interesting and you see right there you can kind of see that the stress that those strings take so i think you're referring to one of a couple pictures that could have been uh either from our single string boot camp or there was one i posted previously before that it's like this archer standing a little bit downhill and his string just looks like it's doing a whip action type thing that's actually um, that's actually a camera problem. So so cheaper. I wouldn't. I don't even want to say cheaper. Just camera technology in general. The way the technology works, it captures the image like from top to bottom, and the the string is moving so fast that it records the frame in an S curve. That's not really what the string is doing. Um, that's just a weird camera trick because the frame rate isn't fast enough. So, so I, I, this is another fun fact about Trevor. <laughs> I used to build uh, casino grade video recorders uh, for CCTV for like for like casinos and and things. So, I, so I know a little bit about camera technology. And uh, I used to be in the security business. And and so yeah, your your standard cell phone pic or a lot of these images you'll see floating around Facebook with these whippy string pictures. That's that's not really what's happening. Um, however, to your point, uh, the string does take a lot of abuse. I mean, all the vibration, and, and it's transferring it into the bow. So that's one of the reasons we choose the materials we choose is we use a little bit thicker uh, individual strand material. We use the D97, and the advantages to that is that it absorbs, because the individual strands are thicker, it absorbs the vibration a little better and and it has a lower overall tensile strength and you would think as a string and you would think oh that's that's terrible wouldn't want that but that's actually ideal because that gives us the ability to put more of those strands into the same string and still create the elasticity we want and absorb a little bit of more of that vibration and transfer less of it to your bow so uh, that brings in better efficiency, better consistency, better speed, better, better whatever. Um, you know, I've seen strings, I've tested strings that weighed almost half as much as, as our strings. So you get a grain scale out and you weigh the string, right? Uh, our strings weigh around 100 grain, let's say. Uh, I've tested strings that weigh 60 grain but are made of a different material of lower elasticity, lower... You know, they might even be blended with other materials uh, to create uh, lower elastic properties, but yet they're slower. And, and that sounds counterintuitive. If I have a string that weighs 40 grain less, why wouldn't it be faster? Because it's just not working with the limb proper to create optimal efficiency. So, so there's a lot of technology that goes into these recipes, a lot of things that we do on the back end that, you know, nobody hears about or knows about to to make sure that we're providing not only the most consistent product which is always my number one you know effort but but at the same time just because that's the thing I'm focused on it doesn't mean that it's not also pretty darn fast and and efficient on the back end well you certain the camera certainly fooled me so can you talk about what happens to the string after the arrow has been released 
So I think the only thing that that's worth mentioning is is that what happens to to the arrow, uh, and, and back to that conversation about the top and bottom knock set. I think that's that's uh, there's a lot of people that only are out there only using one knock set, and if I and if I could give, convey anything to the traditional community, it would be you want to make sure that you have a top and bottom knock set. This is something I learned when I got into target archery, uh, which is kind of something I want to hit on a little bit is the things that the target archery has taught me and, and adding that bottom knock set. If you, if you don't need, if you feel like you don't need a bottom knock set, then, then I think your knock clip must be too tight. There are a lot of knocks on the market. And, and as a string builder, I know that as well as anybody, because I have to try to build the proper serving diameter for everybody's knocks. And so if anybody's done a ton of research on all these knocks out there and how they fit and how they feel, uh, it's me. And what I've learned is there's good, there's a few good knocks on the market and there's a lot of bad ones. And what I mean by that is when you clip them onto the string, you need a knock that both clips on well and once it's clipped, it still fits well. So the clip and the throat have to be in relation to one another. There's a lot of knocks out there that, that in order to get them to fit well once they're already on the string, the clip is super tight. So that's a poor knock because, you know, as you release that string, once it comes off, it's going to hit that hard clip. And it's going to take whatever influences are happening to the bow, you know, if you're not in perfect target alignment, as you know, and as a hunter, we rarely are. So you want to buy a knock, first of all, that's that has a good clip and a good fit once it's on the string. And there's very few of them out there, to be honest, in my opinion, that do a really good job of that. And so once you narrow down to that, the other important thing is to understand that when you release the string, like I said earlier, that string has to travel... Uh, on average, if, if if the average draw length is 28 inches, and let's say your brace height's 8 inches, just for simple math, it's got to travel 20 inches before it leaves the string. So nobody's knock height is at zero, right? All of our knock heights are somewhere, hopefully above zero. Uh, you know, usually I end up at around 5 eighths to the bottom of the top knock set, right? Which means that my knock, my actual knock in the center of it's sitting at about a half inch. So you have to understand that there's going to be some downward forces on that knock, and it's just going to slide down the string, and it could be sliding down an inconsistent amount if you don't have a top and bottom knock set. So that's that's kind of the important things to understand about consistency in aero flight is those two things right there. Is you need a knock that both clips and fits perfectly, and you need a top and bottom knock set so that it doesn't slide up and down after you release the string. So what do you suggest for guys like me that get a dozen arrows and uh, we realize that, and my knock's not fitting on there correctly, either it's it's too loose, so I'm going to bite the end of this knock and, and tighten it down, or it's... Uh, feels like my knock set's too tight you know there's not much i can do there what do you what do you suggest for those guys that do that so i think everybody probably needs to learn how to serve a string it's not very difficult 
Um, if you have, it's a small investment. It, you'll need a serving jig, and you probably need two to maybe three different sizes of serving. Uh, you need to buy anywhere from one to three spools of serving. That just depends on where you're at in your archery. If you've narrowed down to a couple of knocks that you like, then maybe you can get by with one or two serve, uh, different sizes of serving. Um, for us, we carry four sizes, and that covers all the knocks on the market for our strings. And we only use the smallest and the largest for just a couple of the the, the ones on the outside edge of fit. So so most of the strings, 95% of the strings on the market can be done with two serving sizes. And that's not a huge mountain to climb for most people. And learning to serve a string is not a huge mountain to climb for most people. So even the best uh, string makers on the market may not get your knock fit exactly perfect. So it's always good, you know, if you're if you're dedicated to traditional archery and you know you're going to be in it for a while, um, knowing how critical knock fit is, definitely invest in a decent serving jig and a couple sizes of serving, and 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 you should be good from there. Learn learn to serve your string. Gotcha. That's um, that's that's good advice. That's good advice. So this is something that I feel like y'all want to talk about, and I want to I want to hear about, and it's target archery. And can we can we talk a little bit about what that's done for? for your confidence and your overall ability to shoot your bow? Yeah. So yeah, I, I want to talk about it a little bit and I definitely want to get some experiences from, from Mike. Um, one of the things that, that is, and this kind of goes back to some of the conversations we've had earlier about consistency and, and longevity and in your equipment, is that I have learned so much over the years. I know a lot of guys that listen to this podcast are hunters and I have learned so much about hunting over the years from shooting target archery that I just feel really compelled to share some of that with, with the community. And, you know, Mike, I know you got a ton of experiences too. We're both, um, hunters mike mike's a little more on the on the hunting side than i am i mean he goes and does awesome adventures uh and kills all kinds of crazy animals and and i'm more of just the, like the, the average joe backyard deer hunter and turkey hunter here in the midwest um but we're both heavy on the competition archery scene and i think back all the time uh from where i started to where i am now uh for the purpose of helping others and i think about the number one thing I think about is how I started with a 60 pound recurve and, you know, a 400 spine, 2117 aluminum. And <laughs> cause, and honestly, I had no choices guys. I mean, if I could have chose better, it wasn't an option because as I said, in the intro to this podcast, I saw a bow and, and I'm going to elaborate on that a little bit. I was in the bow shop shooting my compound, the one bow shop we had, within driving distance of my house and a guy walks in with this recurve and I'm shooting a 70 pound compound and I'm in there practicing my indoor spots. And I walked straight over to him and I said, wow, that's awesome. Can I see that? And, you know, we got to talking and 30 minutes later I had a compound or I had a recurve in my hand and he had a compound. So we traded on the spot. 
Yeah, and so that's my introduction to traditional archery. I had no instruction, no influencers, um, no one to show me what to do. You know, the conversion was simple for me. I'm pulling a 70-pound compound, so I should be able to pull this 60-pound recurve, right? And (laughs) so I get home, and, and of course, you know, I'm in a compound bow shop. They sell me 2117 aluminums with 125-grain tip, full length and four inch feathers and and i go home and and i go down in the field behind my house and and i start trying to hit this bag target that i bought at 15 yards and you know three out of five i'm hitting it right and i just think it's the greatest thing on the earth i mean you know i'm shooting i'm shooting 358x with a compound at friday night league and all of a sudden i've gone to hitting you know i i guess that block target was probably 18 by 18 I can only hit the the target, not the dot on it, just the target three out of five at 15 yards. And I just think it's the greatest thing on the planet. And it takes me a month to get to a point where I can even come to full draw with the thing at 60 pounds. I mean, I just went down there every day I could and just practiced after after school and work and whatever. And um, that was my introduction. And, and I actually hunted with that bow. Uh, several years later, I, I didn't, I didn't hunt for the first time for many years with that bow. And, uh, I remember a, a doe that I shot and I shot this doe. She was holding pretty still broadside at 20 ish yards and I hit her real high. I mean, it was, it was not an, a, a good accurate shot. It was pretty high. It was below the spine, but above anything important. And there was a decent blood trail, but I probably tracked that deer a mile and never found her. And so that was my first experience with shooting an animal with a 60-pound recurve. And I'll speed the story up a little bit. Years later, uh, I'm shooting a 50-pound recurve with a wood arrow and a, and a you know, like a Zwicky or Magnus-style glue-on uh, point. And I shoot this bucket about 18 or 20 yards, and I just dead square punch him right in the shoulder i mean just the worst place you could absolutely shoot a deer and it just bounces off with a 50 pound bow and for many years that left me wondering if if they just bounce off the deer with a 50 pound recurve what kind of weight do i need to be pulling to to kill these deer like what in the world do i need to do like how am i going to have to go to the gym like you know I mean, if 60 doesn't do it and 50's worse, what what's it going to take, you know? And, and so in my mind, like a lot of hunters, I think I need 50 or more to kill these animals. And, and fast forward to today, 20 years later, um, I'm filling the, I am absolutely filling the freezer with 40-pound bows drawn to my... T- and 27, to be honest, guys, is, is a little generous. Some, with some bows and some grips, I draw... I draw maybe almost 27. Uh, if we're just really being honest, I draw about 26 and a half and I shoot, and I shoot bows, you know, that are, all my bows are marked at 28, but you know, it's like 42 at 28. So I'm shooting 40 pounds at best. And I am just blowing through deer, like a hot knife through butter with three blade broadheads and everything. But the difference is the technology in the bows for one, the efficiency uh, of the bows, the consistency of the tune, the accuracy of my shooting, the quality of my tune and my equipment selection. Uh, I mean, everything now 
you know, my knowledge has got to a point where everything is optimized and I'm able to get absolute amazing penetration and, and efficiency and, and kill ratios on animals uh, because not only do I know my limits, uh, you know, even though I shoot at the highest levels of competition archery and world archery, we shoot 33 yards uh, or 30 meters, but I'm not going to shoot that far on a deer. I'm 20 and in. If that deer's not getting to 20, I'm not going to sling an arrow because I just know what I can do in a in a real hunting scenario. And and like I said, with everything being optimized, I just have a high percentage of kill now because I've learned so much from competition archery. I take my equipment that I'm going to hunt with to these competitions and I shoot it. Um, you know, guys will guys will come with their competition rig and then they get out what they call their hunting rig. And, and they will... <laughs> and I used to be one of those guys. You know, I had my competition bows and I had my hunting bows. And then I, I got to thinking one day, I'm like, well, it's only a 25-yard course a lot of times in, in on a 3D course here in the United States. Why shouldn't I be able to shoot my best with my hunting rig? Why isn't my hunting rig the best shooting rig I've got on the 3D course? And once I come around to that way of thinking, uh, my hunting drastically improved. So, so that's that's where all the stories about shooting in rainstorms and shooting in inclement weather and all kinds of conditions and and you know places when you're hunting, you're not always hunting the same tree every time. You're not a, sometimes you go into a new area and you hunt for the first time. Um, you know, and you get in your rangefinder out and you're checking trees and stuff, it's not familiar areas. It's not your backyard, right? And the competition 3D archery scene teaches us the same thing. You're always going to a new shooter, a new club, or a new place and shooting unfamiliar shots and targets and judging yardage. And you learn how to shoot that equipment uh, in unfamiliar scenarios. And you learn what works and doesn't work. And that same stuff transitions to the woods, and it drastically increases, uh, you know, your kill percentage. So, so that so that's something that's just really been on my mind a lot lately, and and I've, I've found a lot of value in shooting 3D archery, and uh, how it translates to my hunting. Certainly have to practice like you play. Um, that is very important, uh, and I my short time. Uh, with traditional archery, I mean, it's only been four years now. Um, I've learned that you're right, man. Shot placement is so important. And getting out there and being confident with your equipment is key. I mean, you can't you can't pick up your bow right now and and season opens in less than three weeks, man. you it's something you gotta practice at. I mean, Matt, I feel like he could set his bow down for a year and pick it up and, and be a better shot than me. But me personally, I have to keep practicing and keep practicing. And I just have to practice how I want to play. I mean, it's so important. But Mike, how do you, how do you feel um, target archery has improved your game? Oh, man, it's it's made a huge improvement because I'm big on, on uh, the, the physical side of things, right? I mean, um, I do use my hunting bow. Matter of fact, last year I shot bear bow, uh, in the ASA and I had a big elk hunt coming up and I showed up 
at the two pre the two last ASA pro ams with my longbow shooting in the barebow class because I wanted to I wanted that stress inoculation right I wanted to be um, I remember in my group it was like Spanky Brooks um, uh, I think Matt Hudson was in that group and and I was shooting my longbow and having a blast doing it but it wasn't just having a blast it was it was putting myself under some pressure so that um, I could perform at my best when it was on the line. And look, in a competition situation, your heart rate's up, you're, you're sweating, you're, you know, you're trying to concentrate, you're, you're learning to block out all the distractions so that you can focus on making a good bow shot. And I think it transcends into hunting. So there have been, there have been times where I've been on the competition scene and I had, and I really made a point to think, you know what, this is a booner. I just rattled up a booner in Illinois and I'm going to make this shot. And I start thinking about that. And then there have been times where I've been able to flash back to uh, thinking about a 3d situation, you know, and you can, it transcends back and forth. But for me, it's the physical side of the, the mental and physical side of things of, making sure that when you're on a line shooting for something that's that's worth something it, or it means something to you um that you're able to manage that stress and and make a good a good shot under pressure because there's going to be a time in the woods when you when you have a it's time it's go time and if you've never felt that uh if you never had to block out the distractions and focus and and make a bow shot. I hate it when someone tells me that they shot a critter and they don't even remember making the shot. Like I want you to remember. I want to remember every single thing. I want to know when 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 I've got my sight picture or my gap or whatever way you shoot that I was 100% certain that that arrow was going to hit that critter in the boulder room and we were going to have a short tracking job. Um, and I think you get that through. I think target archery gives you that opportunity. 3D archery, you know, stress inoculation and training like you fight, it transcends to what we do, whether it's a mountain hunt or on the back 40, you know. So what's your shot process then? I mean, because I think everyone's maybe a little different. What's yours? Oh, yeah. I mean, the main thing is you have a shot process, right? That's the main thing. Uh, and making sure you've done the same thing over and over and over again, uh, and you know that it works for you. So whatever your shot process is, I think we'd all they would all be kind of consistent of you know hook grip stance, you know all the things that you do in your in your yard you're going to do on the line too. So for me, it is you know uh, I hook grip stance every single time. I start with that every time with whatever and if it's in a tree stand and my stance is wrong then i'm going to get to the stance that i want so hook grip the grip stance you know raise draw anchor aim back tension pull 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 the shot breaks and and that's just the same thing every single time and that's the same thing if i'm doing indoors and shooting indoors or whether i'm on a 3d range or if i'm at home the worst thing a guy can do, in my opinion, is to be home and just slinging arrows without a a dedicated, like, this is what I'm going to do. Or if you've got something you're working on, let's say 
let's say your hand's flying open, you're throwing popcorn and you're plucking the string. Um, I know Fon Gerard gave a great, uh, great way to do this is put penny, pennies in your pocket, you know, uh, 10 pennies in your pocket and, and make sure you get 10 good releases if that's what you're working on. Um, but you know, you put, after you make a good release, you take a penny and put it in your pocket. And the idea is to get all 10 pennies in your pocket with 10 good releases. Inside 20 is brought to you by traditional bow hunters of Georgia. Head on over to tradbowga.com for more information. And by Big Jim Bow Company, a place for custom bows, handmade leather goods, and much more to meet your traditional archery needs. Check them out at bigjimbowcompany.com. Go try archery. Perfect custom-made order for both two and three-blade broadheads. Check them out at gunshotarchery.com. VPA broadheads. Precision machine one-piece broadheads. Two and three-blade broadheads. really interesting that's really so i want to ask um i want to ask trevor is your shot process the same as michael's so so yeah let 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 me talk about that a little bit so having a process just like michael said having a process as whether it's simple or complicated is the number one win and i learned most of my shot process from target archery and and I and I learned a lot about how other archers shoot from from this single string boot camp that we do every year, and talking to people that come to that boot camp uh, because we get instinctive archers. We get you know people who are not heavy on the competition scene or as advanced in their archery. And what's important is that your shot process is measurable, and why that's so valuable is so that you can understand what went wrong when you made a bad shot. If you're yeah. just if you're just hunting and you don't have a competitive aspect to your archery. Not everyone is born a competitive person. I was born highly competitive. I want to compete at everything there is to compete at. Uh if if we can make it a competition, that's what I want to do. That's my personality. I'm not always going to win. I'm obviously, I am not the top physical athlete. I'll never be the the top physical athlete in the room. I'll never be this, but I always have this competitive nature to me. And not a lot of people, or I won't say not a lot, but not everyone has that in them. But But if you can find it in you to make your archery a little bit competitive, you can push yourself, even if you're just competing with your own self in your backyard, Find a way to make your archery measurable. Start to score yourself. Start to, even if you don't want to compete against others, start to lay down a track where you can understand if you're improving or staying the same and start to make your shot process more measurable. When I when I first adopted a shot process, I had so many steps that I was just engulfed in steps like, there were so many steps I, I was actually shooting worse in the beginning because 
I just couldn't get through the myriad of steps I thought I needed to have in order to to make this perfect shot. And I don't remember. I got I got information overload essentially, which is what a lot of archers do when they first start looking into improving their archery. And over time, I learned what things I need and I don't need, and so on and so forth. And and over the years, uh, you know, my steps have gotten less and less. And the reason I have less steps now than when I started is because once something becomes muscle memory or just so day-to-day is how we pick up a fork and hold it to eat, you don't need that as a step any longer. The steps in your shot process are the things that you're either working on changing or the things that you're working on focusing on to improve what you're currently doing. And you can't do those things unless what you already have is measurable. So anybody that's trying to, so I could tell you my shot process, Michael could tell you his shot process. Um, it might, it's going to be a little different if you, every time you see a podium line of two or three archers standing up there on the podium, if you walk up to each one of them, you know, and ask them what their shot process is, you're not going to get the same answer twice ever. And that's because everybody's got their specific things they're focusing on. But what matters is getting into decent alignment Alignment is almost everything. If you don't have good alignment, you don't have a foundation for an archery shot. Uh, And target archery will push you to improve your alignment and learn to get better at that. And from there, you'll start to develop a shot process in support of alignment, and you will become a better archer, a better hunter. Uh, Everything about what you're doing, your draw length will become more consistent when that happens you will be able to see minor variations in your tune. Your tune will get better. Your equipment will become more forgiving. Your arrow trajectory and your uh, angle of impact will become more consistent. You will get better penetration. You'll be able to go down in poundage, which also improves everything you're doing with your archery. And that's when you get to the point where you're blowing through deer with 40-pound bows, like I was mentioning earlier, versus bouncing off the deer with a 50-pound bow, where I was when I first started my journey in in <laughs> in shooting deer and and, and other an, animals and critters. Uh, yeah, so so that's kind of the deal. Is is uh, my shot's pretty basic nowadays. Uh, I mean, and if I just step through it. Um, I say to myself, draw to arm alignment. Um, That's something that means something to me based off of my understanding of the linear shot process. Um, And then there's a couple other steps in between, but basically at the end I'm focusing on uh, my follow through and where I want to end up before I release the string. My, My release actually comes subconsciously. Uh, My focus is totally away from the aim i've put the aim away i've already aimed the arrow the aim is done and i'm focusing on my follow-through and how i want that to look and at some point that happens and shot goes off and usually it's a good result so so that's where i'm at right now and all of that really speaks to me because i i i went through all of it even back to what what michael said about just getting out there and flinging arrows like it's easy to just go out there and just shoot. 
But man, you can really get carried away and start picking up some bad habits when you just go out and you shoot at the hay bale or you go, you go out there and you're just flinging arrows, you know, just for fun because it is a bunch of fun. But I picked up really bad habits doing that and I've slowly started to correct them. So to that point, I certainly agree because I fell victim to it, not paying attention to what I was doing whether it be not coming to full draw every time I did that in a hunting situation and it, it, it spoiled my opportunity. Um, I, I half draw and <laughs> we all know what happens when you, when you half draw your bow out of excitement, you don't have a, you don't have a shot process. And I did that. So yeah, all that speaks to me. And I, I particularly about just going in the backyard and, and flinging arrows, you really do need to be conscious about what you're doing because I personally think you can pick up bad habits that you will take into the woods with you, or you'll take to a competition with you. Yeah. One of the, uh, one of the, one of the, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Trevor. No, 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 go ahead, please. And then I'll jump in. Okay. So, um, one of the greatest target archeries I've, I've known is Dwayne Martin and he had a stage piece of device. Um, we were talking about working long days and then coming home and trying to work on your bow shot. And he was a big believer in when you get home from work, don't try to shoot 50 arrows when you're wore out and you're trying to work on something, you know, and, uh, you know, always think about that when I get home, I'd rather have 10 quality arrows that I, I worked the process all the way through and had a good, good result than to keep shooting. Cause you shoot yourself into a slump. And he likes to say, you know, you're, uh, you're about three good shots from full-blown target panic, you know, whenever you're, when you're not, not working on something. And so, um, just having a plan and shooting your plan, uh, there's numerous books out there and, and there's lots of, you know, I'm sure there's lots of media on how to develop an archery plan for a competition. And for, for us as hunters, I don't think there's anything wrong with planning out. Like I know I do, I'm sure Trevor does. It's okay. I've got, um, I've got a 3D tournament on this date. These are the number of arrows I'm going to work, and I'm going to I'm going to blind bail this many arrows. I'm going to shoot this many, and then I'm going to blind bail this many, so that when it's time to be on the line and I'm shooting a 3D tournament, I've already had a plan. I got a plan for every day, four weeks leading up to a tournament. If it's something I really am interested in, but that that works its way into hunting because you're, you're prepping, you're actually prepping for hunting when you're prepping for that tournament. You know, you're, you're taking, um, you got a skill set and you're working your process and you're working on something so that, um, you know, you don't go and do well at the tournament or you learn something. I learn something every tournament from somebody, you know, whether I learn something about myself, something about my process that I should have changed or I need to work on a little more or I'll see someone else shoot and, and that just makes you a better hunter, man, all the way around. Makes you a better hunter, better bow shot uh, for whenever you're in the woods, you know. So we did a um, a challenge. It was uh, me and Matt and a, a couple of other guys. We did a challenge where it was just you started at 15 yards and you backed up each day. And I'm on my feet all day at work, and I'm tired when I get home. So mm. I would say – 90% of those days I shot one arrow and that was it. I just got up because I didn't want to miss the challenge and I shot one arrow and I'd go down the target and get it. 
And I feel that I learned so much from just shooting that one arrow a day. And because I, I basically called it my cold shot. I told everybody else, I said, this is my first shot in the woods, you know, each day. And yeah. when you really sit there and you focus like that, it, it helps a lot. It certainly helps a lot. Well, and that, and that cold shot, we, we do those cold shots a lot, but those aren't really cold shots. We've built, you've built a bow shot to make that shot. And I don't know how many times um, I've right. been elk hunting or whatever and not had a, and every one of them are cold shots. You know, you're, you're, you're not drawing your bow on your stand five times. I mean, if it's really, really cold, I might draw my bow a couple times just to loosen it up but or loosen myself up. But, you know, cold shots are, you've built that shot with thousands of arrows for that one, for that one shot. I think that's a good practice, you know, just to see, Hey, you know, I'm not loose. I'm, I'm tired, you know, see where that arrow is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, it's important. You, so one thing that I learned this year, um, I kind of stepped away from a couple of the, uh, I guess years, two or three years leading up to this year, I've just been a hundred percent hitting the biggest, like most competitive tournaments that, that I could find that fit my schedule. Right. And a lot of those have been the IBO tournament trail, um, and and I try to, you know, do my best to pin myself against the best archers I can find, even if I have to travel out of state to get to them. And the reason I do that is because I have learned so much from people that, you know, in the beginning were just beating the brakes off of me. And, and, and even if they're not the best at conveying or maybe, maybe they don't have the willingness to share, but if you can just watch them shoot, you learn a lot, but, but most people in traditional archery are very willing to share and help. And, and we've tried to promote, uh, that sort of thing, uh, you know, the willingness to share the knowledge. And, and that's a lot about, you know, what we do with that single string boot camp every year and things like that, uh, is to just get in there and bring together the best archers we can and, and share the knowledge. But this year I kind of went to a few more, what I call, I call them rendezvous. I, I don't, you know, like the Tennessee classic, I call that like a rendezvous type shoot or Compton's a rendezvous type shoot. I went to both of those this year. And what was shocking to me is there's many people that show up to those shoots that I've never seen out on the tournament trail that are equally as good a shot as the top archers on some of the tournament trails. It's just, they're not into that kind of thing, right? They just go to the rendezvous and shoot for fun and and they're just out there just drilling these 3D targets. And so I've learned equally as much from those type of people as well, just by observing, talking to them, listening to their hunting stories. So surround, you know, that's another reason why getting, getting into a little bit of the competitive scene is going to make you way better as a hunter. Um, you know, getting on game is one thing, but, but being able to capitalize is really what I'm talking about, right? Once you get that game in front of you, uh, you know, that animal in front of you, being able to capitalize, you can learn so much from other great archers. Um, and, and you meet random people every time you show up that you've never shot with before. And and I'm just amazed at how good some of these people can shoot. And, and you know, I love watching them and observing them and learning things from them. And, and you just kind of feel like a 
I don't know. It's it's weird. You almost feel like a like you're drawing power off of other people because you're you're getting so much knowledge from them by watching them shoot and learning how they set their equipment up and and things like that. Um, I had a quick quick story about a hunting scenario, and I wanted to ask Mike too if you had a specific scenario in mind. But um, there's this specific scenario that happened to me two years ago, and it was kind of like my aha moment, like requesting this topic on this podcast started two years ago, whether, whether I even knew this moment was going to happen or not. I was, I was deer hunting and I had a a small buck come in. And I mean, to me, it it was every deer is a trophy of lifetime in my mind. I mean, I get so excited. I don't care if it's a little deer with spots or, (laughs) <laughs> whatever it i mean i i if it's got four legs and looks tasty i am about to have a heart attack every single time and so that that's just how it works for me um and because i'm trying to fill that freezer full of yummy venison for you know the next year and so here comes this little buck and i am attempting to not have a heart attack and I get to the point where it's time to take a sh- and and actually I had the deer perfectly broadside. Um, I'm a ground hunter. I I don't get in the tree anymore. Um, I actually have a full saddle setup sitting in a box that I have yet to break out and attempt to use because I just you know I used to work on ladders for a living and and even big big tall ladders and. I just can't do it anymore. I just have never been comfortable with heights. I don't enjoy it. So I've removed that from my hunting. Not only is it more of a challenge, which is fun, but I, I look forward to hunting versus uh, laying in bed at night thinking, God, i got to climb that tree in the morning. You know, I just dread it because I'm, I just don't like heights. So I just removed that from my hunting, and I enjoy it a lot more. And, and, and there's just no better experience than being 15 yards from a deer on the ground. I mean, it's just very, it's a very raw experience. And, and so that's what I do. I like it. And I had this deer come in and he was probably 15 yards from me, uh, for a good three or four minutes, which was the period of time where I was trying not to have a heart attack. I needed one more step from this deer. Um, I had, I had good neck and front shoulder, broadside but there was some trees in the way I, I always hunt in very brushy areas um because i'm just not comfortable with shots over 20 yards with live animals anyway even though i shoot a ton of competition and i feel like i'm a competent archer just to be perfectly honest with everybody deer over 20 not my game I, i'm trying to get them 20 or less and so the deer is at 15 but i just don't have i can't see behind his shoulder i just got a bunch of brush in my way and so eventually he turns and starts walking the wrong direction. And uh, in order to shoot this deer, I know I have to stand up, turn 90 degrees, and then I'm going to be able to draw the bow. So I wait to the perfect moment. I I stand up from my seat. I turn 90 degrees. And at this point, the deer hasn't even seen me yet because I was in a natural blind. I built a natural blind, and I was I was kind of in shock. Before I even drew the string, I was kind of in shock that I was able to stand up and turn 90 degrees, and the deer had yet to detect me. That was shocking. But the next 
thing was I, I draw the string back. I'm coming to full draw, and I get about three-quarters of the way back, and my elbow, uh, inside of my natural blind, there were some small saplings. Um, and my elbow hits this sapling, and I can't, I can't come to anchor. And and so there's the first indication of a well-ingrained shot process. Some guys may have released the arrow right there, uh, but but I've got steps and 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 you know certain checkpoints within my shot. Now I'm not thinking about those; those aren't in the front of my mind at this point. But I hit that I hit that stop, and 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 I haven't come to my anchor, and so the whole thing just pauses right there. And when I hit that tree, of course, all the leaves and branches on it above me start shaking. And that's when the deer notices me and he freezes and he looks straight at me. And so at this point, I have to quickly take one step forward in my natural blind. Um, and then I have to come to full draw and shoot the deer. And so I'm going to jump to the result, which is I shoot. It ended up being I caught both the bottom of both lungs, <clears throat> the top of the heart, and I blew through the offside shoulder and and the broadhead made it all the way out the offside shoulder, even though it hit the worst part, the thickest, heaviest, knottiest part of the shoulder, uh, blew all the way through it. The deer went about fifty yards and fell over dead. Five minutes later I'm I'm starting the gutting process literally. Um so it was a very successful shot. But what didn't happen during that shot was any conscious steps. Like, um, I, I've coached a few uh, new people into archery and, and, and sort of talked them through the, the process of developing a very formal shot process. And I always get this question, what, well, you know, I'm just a hunter. Like, how am I going to do these things when I'm in the woods? I'm like, well, you know, if you can, you will. But if you're in a scenario where you can't, this or you need to hurry up and do something, you're, you're still going to fall back on what you've learned. Even though it's subconscious, you're still going to come back to perfect form or you know as good of a form as you can achieve, and you're still going to exe execute a great shot. I didn't say to myself, draw to arm alignment. I didn't say to myself, you know, I, I wasn't thinking about my follow-through. Uh, everything was much faster than that in that scenario, but I was doing all those things I know because if I hadn't come to full alignment, if I hadn't got my elbow back all the way and behind, you know, behind the arrow, if I hadn't done those things, I wouldn't have made, if I hadn't have seen a sight picture, if I hadn't have seen a gap, I wouldn't have made a perfect shot. It was a dead perfect shot, even though the deer was at 18 yards. I mean, I know that's not the furthest distance to shoot something, but everything about that shot ended up being perfect. And it's because of everything that I have ingrained through target archery and trying to build a consistent shot process. And, and I know that anybody that's gone down that journey and, and jumped into, you know, the competition scene or the target archery scene and picked up tips and tricks is, is going to have a similar story because when you know, I didn't have those things back when I was shooting those 60 and 50 pound bows. And that's why those shots always failed. Whereas in this scenario, I was able to say, Hey, I'm not taking this subpar shot where I'm at three quarter draw and I have no idea where this arrow is going to go. I, 
it's going to be a good shot or it's not happening. And that and that's what you learn from from gaining that consistency from the target side of archery. So yeah, that was that's my question. I want to pose to you, Mike. And like I said, we didn't rehearse this. I just I'm throwing it out to Mike. I want to see if you have any similar story because I know you got a lot more animals under your belt. You know, there may be a scenario <laughs> where you have you have drawn from your target side uh, and have a similar oh, story. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's been there's been numerous times things like that have happened. The most, the the glaring one for me, and I've been, now listen, I live in the center of the deer universe. I don't want someone to think I'm some savant, but I've killed three Boone and Crockett deer with stick bow and, and one with a muzzleloader. So I've killed some really good whitetails. And I'm, I'm obsessed with hunting big, mature bucks. I've, I'm just, that's something I've always been obsessed with. And I was hunting with Monty Browning. <clears throat> um, we were bow hunting together on, on my farm. And, uh, it was almost the exact opposite scenario for you. It was like everything worked perfectly. I saw the buck coming from my left. I knew which buck it was, uh, a big six-and-a-half-year-old four, and uh, he was coming from my left um, to uh, just a little uh, bottleneck, and I was, I was actually in, a, in the tree stand and a ladder stand, and uh, that was the first time since I'd been competing that I worked a shot process to perfection where I knew exactly what was going to happen when the arrow got there. Like, so when I talk about, you know, working my steps, I had everything in my favor. I had the win, right. I had the right win angle. Um, he was coming from my left and, uh, I had plenty of time to work my steps. And for the first time after killing a bunch of big game animals, um, you know, elk, mountain goats, lots of whitetails, bears. That was the first time I can remember because of because of competition archery that I had worked the shot all the way through to completion and I felt that follow through on the back of my neck. I, I like whenever I shoot the bow and when I finish, when Trevor talks about his finish, I want that pretty finish to be I want to feel like um I teach my kids this. Um Sounds pretty gross, but the Brazilians, I'm a big martial artist, and the Brazilians, when you're when you're in Brazil and you're fighting with a Brazilian, they say Uva Mare, and that means uh you're gonna die. And they give this little symbol with their throat, like a throat slash. That's how I finish. I want my I want my hand to be behind my neck, um, in that, that finished position after you've had perfect alignment and the bow goes off. And all of those things happened in the step by step process, and I double longed a great great whitetail and he crashed within 50 yards you know um and i didn't even you know it wasn't even a blood trail so much as just hearing him fall and knowing that from the minute i saw the buck until i felt that follow through touch the back of my neck i knew i knew the result and it it was because i had worked so hard to build that shot process even with success before i developed that shot process now I felt like it was streamlined and uh, I had, I had thrown out what didn't work and I kept what did work and everyone's going to be different. But for me, that feeling that I knew that that shot broke and that that animal was done um, was a, was an awesome feeling. There was no more hope. That hope was over. You know, it, I, the shot was, the shot was done when I felt, I felt my follow through. Yeah, man, it, it, it's rewarding to get lucky. It's even more rewarding to shoot a process and and just know before you let it go 
it's going to be in there, right? And and then it happens, yeah. and you're like, you know, it's so confirming that you've built something that you can you can deploy under pressure, and and you know, it's just, I mean, that's a whole other level of feeling. So I switched over from right-handed to left-handed last year. So I elk hunted right-handed in Idaho, and uh, I was having some orthopedic issues. And I, I basically had an opportunity to build my shot from the left-handed side the better than I had the right-handed side because I had the experience of building a process on the right-handed side. And so October 1 rolls around, and I've only – I don't. I, I didn't even let myself really hunt that much in October because I was still working on a left-handed shot. And um, you know, first week of November, a great five by four walk walked in inside twenty, baby, and I executed the same shot from the left side with the same follow through that I had from the right side. It was almost the same thing, right? It was. It was like, okay, this this tra- this goes. I can shoot do this you know, this is something that can uh, be used over and over and over again. And in in that case, and now with me being a lefty, I've been able to duplicate it from the left side. And, and it, and it comes from building that shot process and, and stress uh, testing it through competition. Man, I could listen to you guys all night. Y'all, y'all really are a wealth of knowledge. Um, Y'all both been shooting since what 2002? Is that what y'all said? Yeah. <laughs> well, y'all have. No, I think I have, think Mike Mike said Mike said that he shot his first animal when I was two years old. <laughs> yeah, it was it was 86. Yeah, I, I killed my, I killed my I was, first. I was year. born in 84, so you know. <laughs> yeah, I shot a doe in 1986. I was 16, and I shot I shot a doe uh, with with that. I think it was a Howitt recurve. I, I wrote it down what it was. It wasn't that herders. It was something else. But uh, it that is how old it was. It was a quickie quiver that was attached to the bow, and the and the uh, it did not have a hood to cover the broadheads. I still have a scar on my left leg where I cut my climbing and tree. Oh, it was pre tree stands too. So I was just in a tree standing on a branch when all that went down. So it's a uh, yeah, been at it for a little while. So yeah. And I won't say how many years it took me to kill my first traditional animal, but I just want to remind everybody that we didn't have social media back then. So, That's you know, right. just rem- right. everything we was fi- everything we was figuring out, it was on our own and, and right. to our own devices. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Got to read books, you know. <laughs> Do it the old That's right. Way. I didn't even have yeah. any books. <laughs> I, I went to the library and checked out books on bow hunting you know, as much as I could get. And, um, luckily in our neighborhood, um, there were some, there were some guys, this is right when the compound age started. So there were still some guys that shot, but I didn't even, I like, I shoot three under, I'm sure Trevor does too. I was shooting split with, I'm sure mismatched arrows. I mean, but I had shot in the backyard to get consistent 15 yard, you know, felt like i could hit a pie plate that used to be the standard you know hey if you can hit a pie plate you can hunt now i don't want to hit the pie plate i want to hit the freaking very center of the pie plate you know? yep that's right yep you know yeah. and back to the back to the books um when you don't have when you i guess when you didn't have the internet i'm i don't really remember not having internet around i guess that that tells my age i'm, <laughs> I'm still kind of young but um like 
we talked to Clay Hayes uh, about a month ago, and he said that he was inspired, and his whole bow building career was inspired by the Bowyer's Bible. So I guess it takes mm-hmm. it just takes the the right person uh, with the right material in their hand to really get influenced and, and and just run with it. So hats off to people that have to do traditional or learn by themselves because like like y'all talked about tonight, there's there's a uh, there's a good bit that you know needs to be learned and needs to be taught and shared. Um, so my hats off to you fellas. Sure, man. Yeah. Yep, yeah, for, for sure. sure. Yeah, I was I, I was pretty shocked. Uh, you know, just tell one more story. Uh, <laughs> I was shocked to find out that what I was shooting was called gap. I I didn't know. Um, you know, when I got that first recurve. <laughs> And that sight wasn't on my bow anymore. The only thing, I was 15 shots into owning this recurve with no sight on it. Because I had shot the compound, like I said. And uh, and I'm like, I need to aim this thing somehow. And I'm like, well, all I've got is the tip of the arrow. And so I figured out real quick, because I'd shot a lot of shotguns. uh, My dad was into guns, and we'd shot pistols and shotguns. And I'd shot a little trap and... uh, you know, I kind of thought, well, that that arrow looks like a gun barrel, and so if I if I hold it just right under my eye, uh, you know, and move it up and down, I can figure out where to hold it in order to hit where I'm aiming, right? And so you don't even know how many years I went on like that until I the leather wall come around, and you know, or or I came to the internet at least. I mean, where I grew up in Missouri, we're pretty primitive i you know lived on a dirt road and and you know we eventually got the dial-up internet and so on and so forth but so i'm sure the internet was around a few years before i had it but uh but yeah i got on the leather wall and learned that what i was doing was called gap and i'm like wow i figured this out and it's called gap (laughs) i mean it was it was it's kind of you know you know nowadays everybody's presented with oh i just bought a trad bow what should i do and you get 175 comments Right. right. And it's just so different from where we came from, which is, man, that thing I've been doing for five years is called Gap. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Somebody <laughs> else. I didn't just come up with it. Somebody else actually. Yeah. Somebody up. knows That's about cool. this. <laughs> yeah. Someone knows about it. That's really cool. That's really cool. So I want to I want to uh, start wrapping it up, but I got to hear the story. If there is a, a good story to it about your mountain goat hunt michael oh yeah man sure yeah um so um yeah it it goes back to being that kid sitting on my grandfather's couch and reading outdoor life and um i read an article on hunting mountain goats and uh, i told my great-grandfather i'm like i'm gonna do this someday and he's like okay you know you just get a good job and, and have a good career and you'll be able to do it so that that's that was in my mind and probably of all the animals, the more you read about mountain goats, the more you realize how tough of a hunt it was going to be. And, you know, I would even argue the toughest mountain hunt in the world. So, um, I, uh, I went up to British Columbia. I trained, I started training in, uh, like January of that year, uh, and was two hours a day training. Uh, I caught five days a week all the way up till September when the hunt was uh, going to be going off. And, got up there and uh man whatever kind of cardio and um, muscle that i put on 
was I was way undertrained. Like you can't really explain what a six hour climb um, to get to an animal that vanished and then you got to climb back down. What that does to you mentally and physically. Um, you know, uh, it was just a grind. It was a 10 day grind day five. I found a goat, uh, from the bottom and I had a, I had a guide because, um, you can't draw a goat tag in the, in the U S in the continental U S, uh, pretty hard as a flatlander. If you're not from the West and you don't hit the lottery, you're not going to get a tag. So Troy, uh, at Beaverfoot Outfitters, who now is a great friend of mine, I've been up there a couple more times, but, uh, our deal was when we got the rifle range, the, the, his job was over and it was my job to close the last 300 and, and make, you know, get into bow range. And day five, we climbed six hours, uh, through some really rugged stuff to get to a goat and it started snowing. I put my jacket on. This is where you're not knowing your equipment, um, is, is so vitally important. I put my jacket on, but I didn't put it over my, uh, I didn't put my arm guard over. So I get all the way to this giant billy and long story short, uh, got into my arm and missed the goat of a lifetime, you know, and it was just crestfallen because it was five days of torture, <clears throat> but, you know, didn't quit, uh, kept after it, even though I lost uh, all my toenails and, uh, 10 more pounds on that hunt day 10, no day 11. Cause I picked up an extra day. We saw Billy from the bottom and made about a six hour climb and got to it and realized it was a nanny. I've got it on video. It wasn't when I came all the way to British Columbia to shoot. It was just a little nanny. And um, she was just there. And I, I looked back and glassed Troy up and shook my head, gave him the downside. He couldn't figure out what was going on. And I thought the hunt was over, but uh heard a rock kick above me. And here's a nice billy. And there's an avalanche chute. And if he went on the far side of the avalanche chute to where the nanny was, I wasn't going to get a, an ethical shot. It was going to be a 40-yarder. Instead, he chose my side of the avalanche chute and walked straight to me and gave me like an 18, 20-yard shot and, uh, you know, rose up from my knees. I was actually in his in a bed. These big, these billies will make these rut pits, and I was actually laying in a rut pit, rose up to my knees, made a really good shot, double-lunged him, and uh, he turned and wheeled and proceeded to climb 200 feet of rock face with both lungs blown out and uh they're the toughest animals the toughest critters i mean just amazing animals but i knew he was done i was afraid he was going to take a god-awful fall but fortunately we we uh were able to go around the rock face and there he was laying on like a little tabletop and wasn't a giant billy but is a three and a half year old billy with a longbow so i'm, ne- I'm not going to ever complain man that's awesome i've always heard about how you can be you can be on the track of one of those billies and they just disappear. They like just it's like it's Houdini, man. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we I thought this is it, you know. So you're climbing, you got that little bit of adrenaline, and uh, you know that hunt probably from a physical perspective was a was the hardest hunt I've ever done. I've done another one since, and God willing, I'm gonna get another one in me before my days are done. But um, mentally it was such a difficult thing because you would see these billies and you would see, you get a chance you you would get to where maybe you were then 300 and all of a sudden they're gone it's like they just vanish and it's a it's a rock face you know where did they go but you know they're dodging eagles and they're dodging um 
grizzlies, you know, and me running around up there with a stick bow, they're, they're not really afraid of me. They'll climb another 300 feet and look down at me, you know? So yeah, it was a, it was an epic hunt, but it was, it all came together and I still had to make a bow shot. You know, I still had to execute my shot and, and put it where it needed to go. And, and it worked out, you know? Isn't that the awesome thing about traditional archery? I mean, you can, you can, uh, you can hunt these animals, but I mean, just because, just because they're in front of you does not mean that that's your trophy or that's, you know, Mm-mm. meat for your freezer. Um, no, I've said it no, before. And I, I think, uh, I've said Go it ahead, before that you can, you can hunt these animals and then hopefully you don't have a second hunt after your, your arrow leaves the bow. Um, but <laughs> sometimes that happens, man. You know, sometimes it happens yeah. like that. Well, that's why you prepare, you, you get your, like Trevor mentioned, you get your equipment, right. You get yourself, right. You, you go and you shoot and you practice under stress. You get, you get all those variables that are within your control. You get those done because you want to stack all the chips in front of you because there's one thing left when the, when the arrow leaves the bowstring, it's no longer up to you. And there's just some bad things, you know, sometimes animals do, do weird stuff and there's weird angles or there's, you know, there's just things that happen, but a guy that stacks all of his chips in front of him from his equipment to, to having a mindset and being able to execute a bow shot under duress, those are all controllable variables. And, uh, you do all that you can so that when the moment of truth comes, you've, you've got, you've got all, you did everything you could do to make it work. That's right. So, Mike, let me ask you real quick. Sorry, I, I want to ask Mike a quick question. <laughs> one one yeah. last question for Mike. Uh, uh, all the animals you've hunted, I mean, because you've hunted such a variety of game compared to myself, you know, I'm just hunting the deer and turkey and squirrels that's around the house here. Uh, what's your feeling? You know, I've made the comment several times on this podcast, like, you know, here I am now, uh, 20 years into it and and i feel the most optimal hunting a deer with a 40 pound bow i with mm-hmm. my you know barely barely 27 inch draw with all your experiences yeah. and going out west and stuff like you know what kind of poundage i know this is everybody's question constantly what kind of yeah. poundage is getting it done for you man you know i like you started out jumping from the compound world to a recurve not my first one. I think that first one was only 45 pounds. I should have kept it and because and, I was on to something. But that first recurve I had was a 65-pound uh, recurve, which is, I was way overbowed. I didn't, I'm sure I didn't get all the way back. And I would hate to go back and watch myself shoot. I mean, I managed to get it done on some, some critters. But as I got more tuned into my equipment, I got less and less and less, just like you. Let's put it this way. I hunted moose in New, in, in, uh, in British Columbia two years ago with a 44-pound recurve and a 550-grain arrow. Now, I didn't, get to, I didn't get to put that through one, but I put a 600-grain um, a, a arrow out of a 43-pound longbow through a, a cow elk at 30 yards, which that, well, that shot distance is my max on a uh on on a critter that size um 30 is it uh moose 30 i won't shoot past 30 
um, you know, elk not past 30, but man, like this year I'm hunting with a 42 pound, uh, recurve bow. And I guarantee you I'm going to get past threes. You know, it's just, it's just remarkable when you get that equipment kind of streamlined, what it, what it's capable of. And I would have, I would have had zero problem shooting a bull moose with a 45 pound recurve. And, uh, I think my, I think my arrow setup was right at 600 grain. So I had a pretty heavy arrow setup, a uh, carbon arrow with a two blade, uh, broadhead. But like I say, I, I don't think it would have been any trouble. Yeah. That's awesome to hear, man. That is awesome. Yeah. Here. I mean, my lighter Sorry, pound bows, ahead. if you're, if, if lighter pound, if you've got that bow tuned up and you know, and it's, I mean, the, it'll, it'll do the trick. Um, I, I'm curious, like last year I shot, uh, I shot a night left-handed. I shot a nice buck and it was a, it was a double longer at 18 yards or so. And, uh, like, I mean, it was sticking in the ground on the other side. Uh, so it's, it's more than adequate. That's awesome. You know, I think a lot of guys come from compound and they think that they need, you know, a 60, 70 pound bow. And it's just, it's, it's hurting your form, you know, when you first start mm-hmm. out. And I think it's important for people that have been shooting a long time to let folks know you can, you really can kill, I think almost anything in North America with a 40, 45 pound bow. I mean, for sure. Michael, you, you would know, um, for sure. I shot a bear. I shot a, I shot a good size black bear, um, with a, you know, with a 42 pound, uh, longbow, you know, and I got a, I got a, I didn't get a pass through cause bears are just really thick, but it was, I got a lot of bone, put it that way. Uh, those ribs are pretty thick, but I mean, the bear didn't go 30 yards. I, I think, I think, uh, you mentioned form and I, so many times we just, get in our head we need more power and what we need is more efficiency and if you if you're efficient if your draw cycle and release cycle is efficient and you're getting all the way back to your designated draw length every single time and not short draw on the bow what happens when your adrenaline goes up your heart rate goes up you have a cortisol level that goes up all the stress hormone goes up you're less likely to complete a full draw you're probably going to be short drawing it you know and getting that process built in already hardwired into your system so it can override all those stressors, you know, I think is important. And you don't do that with it. I don't think you can do that with a 70 pound bow, you know? No, that, I don't. That's, I don't one think little, that's one little quick piece that also about target archery has taught me what my optimal draw weights are is that mm. a lot of times I'll practice with something in the backyard and it may feel a little on the heavy side, but then I get into competition and I have that extra layer of stress. And mm-hmm. anytime you're under stress and you have that adrenaline going, your bow feels lighter. I don't yeah. know what it is about that. And I'm sure everyone experiences the same thing. Like that, that goes back to the thing where the guy says, I don't remember anything. I just drew back and shot that thing. And, and, you know, I got lucky and, <laughs> and killed it. And, and it's mm-hmm. because you're under that extreme amount of stress but over the years, I have gone between working in the backyard and and being on the competition circuit and being in the hunting woods and trying to triangulate what is my perfect weight, you know, because it needs to feel a little heavy in the backyard. It needs 
so that it feels perfect in competition so that it feels mm. perfect in the hunting woods and you know that that's really um you know something that you can't teach somebody that's all going to be personal to your physical abilities but that's where you know all my bows now i mean you know I, i'm fortunate to own <laughs> more bows than i can shoot i've got a good 15 of them probably stacked up and uh they're all 38 to 44 pounds every single one of them and and i draw two pounds less than that because i'm 27 inch draw so you know uh take that for what it is uh, you know 36 to 42 pounds basically at my draw length all my bows are in that range now because of that and you know sure mm. if i was go to hunt a moose or a big game uh, i mean maybe i would consider something a couple pounds heavier but uh I'm not going to go drastic on it because I know that's a range that I'm super lethal at and super accurate at, and and I'm probably going to get the job done, like you said. Yeah. Guys, y'all y'all are a wealth of knowledge. Um, we've hit on some really really good things tonight, and I've I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap her up for us um, if y'all don't mind, um, and if you if you need a champion level Flemish or endless string, check them out on Facebook at triple T strings for sure. Uh, y'all make a great product. Um, if y'all don't mind, I'm going to close this out in a, a quick word of prayer. Go ahead. Go for it. Dear heavenly father, thank you for giving us the ability to share this passion for hunting and the love of your creation, Lord. Thank you for Trevor and Michael and bless their family and keep them safe this this year, Lord. Uh, Lord, please bless all the things we do and say. Let it honor you. Lord, I pray that you protect and watch over all of us as we prep for hunting season this year. Keep us safe. Let us make good ethical shots. I pray all these things in your heavenly name. Amen. Amen. Hey.